a message from our sponsor, Ingram Barge Company. Calling all pilots in the Gulf region. Ingram Barge Company is offering a $5,000 sign-on bonus for pilots interested in living board positions. We offer a variety of schedules including 28 and 14, 20 and 10, and 21 and 21. Applicants must have a Master of Towing Vessels license with Inland and Western Rivers endorsements. Ingram offers a competitive benefits package and 401k with company match. Apply today at www.ingrambarge.com. Welcome back to Between the Levees. I am joined again on a special episode by Captain Boat Trash himself, Cohen Bush. Captain Cohen, welcome back. Yes, sir. Glad to be back. And, and I wear that, that title with, with pride, too. So. As you should. So today's topic will actually be uh, life in the fleet. But before we get too far into that, Cohen, tell me about your, uh, your home away from home, the mighty motor vessel Port Allen. All right. Port Allen. Uh, it was built in 1964. Uh, it originally was an 800, no, it was a correction, 680 horsepower boat when it had Caterpillar engines. It's uh, roughly 58 foot long and 22 foot wide. And uh, what makes it really unique is that uh, when they built it, they called it a pipe fitter's nightmare because there's no flat spot on the boat, on the hull of the boat. It's actually football shaped, it's wider in the middle narrower on the bow and stern. Uh, and then when you look at it, when it's up on dry dock, it looks like a giant guppy. I mean, it's, you got the big belly, but because of that unique design, it, it puts the water right on the wheels where you get the most power. Uh, like I said, it was built in 1964 by Midland. Uh, it was built at the old Port Allen Marine shipyard, which is on the uh, Port Allen route, not too far from the Port Allen locks. It was actually built to work that shipyard. And for some reason or other, they needed it out in the fleet and it did so so well out there that that's where they kept it. Uh, like I said, when it was originally built, it was 680 horsepower, had Caterpillar engines in it. Uh, later on, it was repowered with Detroit's, which brought it up to an 800. And then now we have Cummins engines and it's a thousand horsepower. And when was that done? When did you, when was it powered up to a thousand? God, that must've been, I may be a little off on these times, but maybe about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Uh, I think we switched to the Cummins engines. Wasn't too long after Ingram bought Capital out, which was in 2009. So 2010, so somewhere between 12 and 13 years ago, something like that. And, uh, but it, it's a thousand horsepower boat but it's a very powerful thousand. Uh, when it first got repowered to a thousand horsepower, we brought it out in the fleet and uh, Carline had one of their boats, can't remember the name of the boat, but it was a, a 1350 triple screw. And one of the guys running it, he, he used to work in the Baton Rouge Harbor. He said, come on, let's push. So, you know, we got Tony to Tony and a little old Port Allen shoved that triple screw, triple screw 1350, shoved him up the river. So he just said, all right, I give, he tapped out, he left. Uh, wasn't too long after that, a few days after that, CCI fleet that's also in Baton Rouge, they had their, their pride and joy boat. And a uh, guy that was the, the captain on there, his name was Skippy Valance. Uh, some of the old timers will know that name. He, he worked everywhere. But he said, come on, let's shove. 
So we hooked up and uh, pushed him up the river. He got off of it. He said, all right, I give. He said, you see that boat you on? They need to write songs about that boat. Cause it's, <laughs> it's just an amazing little boat. It's so maneuverable. Uh, it, it spoils you. It, it absolutely spoils you. Well, I've been up in that telephone booth a couple of times. How much room you'll have to operate in there? Well, this is no exaggeration. I'm five foot nine. And if I put my arms out like this, I can touch both sides of the wheelhouse. So, uh, I mean, people in prison have more room than we have in that little wheelhouse. But on that note, it makes everything readily accessible. I mean, all my, my clipboards, everything I need, I don't have to get up and move, uh, even the coffee pots one arm's length away. So, I was going to uh, say, uh, how many pots of coffee are you drinking in, in the watch? <laughs> I get on a boat, the very first thing I do is, is pour a cup of coffee, and I'll go through the first pot of coffee in less than 45 minutes. And I'll make another one a couple hours later than that. So, yeah, I've got, and, and I have my own special blend, too. So it, it's half of, half of a local uh, coffee that's known to be strong, and then also half a uh, Cuban espresso coffee. So it's pretty powerful, but two pots a day. And uh, first one's gone in, in about 45 minutes. Yeah, I think you shared a cup with me one time. I don't know that I slept that night, but uh, whatever the case. So tell me, you get on the boat, you make your pot of coffee. Walk me through a, a watch. What do you do on that boat? All right. Uh, well, I'll give you a, you know example of a day on, on a fleet boat. Let's, let's say the, the lead boat, coordinator boat. Uh, you first come on, of course, you talk to your relief, and he tells you what boats are in, in the fleet, pretty much where they're at in the tow work. And then, you know, he goes home. We, we go home, we're what they call a dinner bucket boat. We, we go home every, every, every uh, when you get off watch. Every day we go home. We don't live on the boat. So he tells you a little bit about what's going on. And then you sit down and you start going through your boat orders, your night orders. Okay, let, let's say we're working nights. So you go through your night orders. Now on those night orders, they'll tell you what local docks are gonna need shifts to them, what uh, ship uh, docks in the canal, and, and, and you know the information that, that you need for, for the local docks that, that's gonna take place that night. So after you, so you, you locate those barges on your fleet picture, figure out what you gotta do to clear them up, try to figure out who you're going to send where. And uh, then you start looking at tow diagrams. Not only the boats that are, that are there in the fleet at the time, but also the boats that are coming in that night or, or possibly the next day. Because, uh, you know, our, our main job in the fleet is we build tow. We, we, we shift barges in and out of the local docks, but we also build tow. Uh, we, we, we'll get tow diagrams and you may have to build a 30 barge tow for a boat that's going to be here three days from now. And so you start doing that. Uh, but so anyway, so you go through all your tow diagrams and you may have tows for four different boats over the next couple of days that you're billing for and, and strategically placing barges so that you can have them when you need them for these ships. Then after you develop your game plan, then, then you start shifting barges. Uh, at our fleet, we have five fleet boats. And like I said, once you develop your game plan, you start sending your other boats to getting them to make shifts to start filling these tolls or possibly going to shift some, something in or out of one of the docks. Um, 
one of the other things that the lead boat coordinator boat does when you're working nights, let's say if, if you're, if one of the boats is shorthanded, because we have a company policy, one deckhand can't work by himself, have to have two men. So some of our crews have extra deckhands and one of the responsibilities for the lead boat, if another boat is shorthanded, we make sure we'll try, we, we, we can juggle the crews however we see fit so that everybody has an experienced man and, and everybody has at least two men on, on, on watch. If not, you have to have, if you don't have, if we don't have enough deckhands to fill that spot, you have to have one boat babysit another boat. That, that boat with one deckhand cannot shift the barge by himself. He has to be in the vicinity of another boat so the deck crews can work together. So after you get all that, make sure everybody's got the deckhands, uh, then probably the next thing you do is you figure out what boat you're going to send to what dock. Because we, we have shifts that go back in the, in the canal, uh, shifts up to Devil Swamp, uh, and, and also the local docks. And one of the things that you have to take into consideration when you're picking what boat is going to make what shift is the experience level of the crew, uh, the pilot. Whether or not he, he's familiar with, you know, especially back in the canal, some of those places are pretty tight. You don't want one of your bigger boats going back there. Uh, so that's, you start getting those dock shifts out of the way. And then after that, it's tow building. And, and uh, for anybody that's not familiar with tow building, you know, you, your, your line haul boats that push, that, that shove 30, 40 barges, they come into the fleet. And they'll drop and pick up anything from one barge to drop the entire tow, drop 30 barges and pick up 30. And, and we have to make sure that we have the fleeting space for that. And also start billing that, like if he's going to drop his whole tow, start billing the tow that he's going to pick up. Uh, and then after that, it's just tow building and tow building for the next 12 hours. And how many boats are you responsible for? We have a total of five boats in the fleet. So I have my boat plus four others. And uh, which that's one of the things about a coordinator boat, okay? You can't just sit around and, and point your finger and do this, do that. You have to also shift barges. So you have to think about the shift that you're making. You have to think about the shift that each one of the other four boats is, are making. And then when they get done with that shift, you have to have an idea of what their next shift is going to be. So you're, you're actually thinking about eight, eight shifts at one time so that you can keep the workflow going, uh, you know, and, and it, it's when the other guys get a few moments to take a break, you're sitting there staring at tow diagrams, figuring out the easiest and most efficient way to clear a barge up so that they can get access to it and put it in the tow where it no goes so that you're not double working yourself, double working your crew, and, and double and triple handling barges that you don't need to. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, so you got, you're looking at, you know, four other boats. And then not only do you have to tell these boats where to go, you also have boats coming out of the canal calling you, line boats coming in. You have to know where you're going to put those boats at to do the work. And, and so you're, you're looking at boat positions several hours ahead so that you can get in contact with these guys so that when they call you, you're not, oh, well, let me see. So that you can tell them right off the bat, this is where I need you to go. 
He's just backing over here. This is how long it's going to be before you get your, you know, get your toe work done. So there's a lot of decision making that that goes into just building toe. Before we get too far, for the sake of my, uh, I know that my, I've got a handful of listeners in Australia that know absolutely nothing about what we do. Uh, interviewed him, and in fact, on my other show. But uh, before we get too far, you said canal a few times. I know that to be the Port Allen route, of course, the Port Allen lock. Can you uh, give a rundown of, of that whole situation, what the Port Allen route is and all that? Port Allen route is, it connects the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to the ICW, Intercoastal Waterway, down in Morgan City. Instead of boats having to go all the way down to New Orleans and go through, uh, I think, the Algiers locks, they can go through the Port Allen locks, and it's, it's called a Port Allen, uh, I what the abbreviations for, you got to excuse me, but it's the Port Allen alternate route, and it, it connects Baton Rouge to the, to the ICW at Morgan City so that you can bypass, you know, going through New Orleans. And uh, our, like, the, the tolls that come in, Say that your north and southbound line haul tows, the ones that push the big 30, 40 barge tows, they'll come into the fleet, drop barges that are designated for Texas. We'll take those barges out of the 30 barge tow, build six packs, which six barges, two barges wide, three barges long, and the, and the canal boats will come in, take the barges from the river, go into the canal, and and bring them out to Texas or wherever they got to go. Anywhere from, you know, Louisiana to Texas. I, I don't know how far it goes out, Brownsville, Texas, something like that. But uh, it goes a good ways out. But as far as your local fleet shifts, uh, the, the Port the Island Lock is at mile 64. So y'all go, y'all don't go below 61 or so, huh? Well, actually, the fleet boats, there's a couple facilities inside. And when you say mile 64, that's mile 64 on the, on the Port Allen route. Uh, river mile marker is 228 point something, but uh, we actually have a few facilities down the canal that are in the, the mile 56, something like that. So, you know, 10 or 15 miles is, is the extent that we shift barges out of the fleet to service any docks back in that area. So we've covered what's normal. I know you have a few stories from over the years. How long have you been at the sticks on that vessel? All right. I've been I've been in, in Capital Fleet for 33 years. Been on the Port Allen uh, probably 28 years, 27 to 28 years uh, continuously. Of course, I decked on it. That was the very first boat I ever set foot on when I was hired in 1978, 79. That was the very first boat I put on. But but yeah, what what I've mentioned so far is just the average day, and then course you know in, in that amount of time there's been quite a few instances where it's not the average day uh everything from weather you know we we've had seems like my schedule every major hurricane that's hit baton rouge i've been on watch uh the, the last hurricane that we had we uh out of out of the four boats that that go home every day we had two pilots, myself and Richard Hernandez, and one deckhand show up. Can't fault the guys that didn't show up, you know, because family first. But, you know, I don't know, some people like me, we we go to the job. So we, we were there, and hurricanes coming through. And, and when 
hurricanes come through, we, we have a procedure where we block up all the barges, we double rig everything. I mean, it, it's, it's hard down. There's more wires on that than you'll ever see on a tow that goes north and south down. And uh, we had all the boats tied off at the office. And I don't know if you want to say for safety's sake, we weren't sitting on the boat. We were actually by the office itself and we're standing out there and, and the office has a, a metal built roof on it. And the, the roof was just flapping, flapping, flapping. And uh, I was really surprised that some of it didn't just come off. And uh, so we were sitting there and we, you know, we trying to monitor the, the boats, making sure nothing's wrong with them. Well, the hurricane passes and if you show you how my priorities are, hurricane passes and, and you know, I made mention of the metal, metal roof. My shop, my woodworking shop, uh, it has a metal roof on it. So we just went through the hurricane. I mean, we had 80, 90 mile an hour winds in Baton Rouge. Get off work, I'm going home. And do I go home to check on the wife and, and, and family first? No, I go to my shop. <laughs> so I drive up and, and, and this is the, 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 I step out and I see the roof and everything's still intact. And I literally got out and I said, thank you, God. I didn't want to have to re-roof my shop. But uh, now we, we get hurt, you know, the weather is one thing. And, and I've sat through um, quite a few hurricanes and it uh, gets pretty intense. You, you have four, the Mississippi River that's normally smooth, okay? You'll have four and five foot waves, literally five foot waves middle of the Mississippi River. And uh, it gets pretty intense. We, we have one of our anchor tiers that small barge is, is, is on a, a, a giant anchor chain, ship anchor chain. It goes down to an I-beam that, that's into the bottom of the river. The wind actually blew it, spun it around 180 degrees and blew it up river. So, so normally the anchor chain that, that's pointing north was now pointing south and it was as tight as you could get it. That's how the wind was blowing the barge up the river. So it was pretty intense. Um, some of the other things that, that, that uh, you wanna say out of the ordinary, uh, dead bodies. Uh, the Port Allen is actually on the calling chain for the West Baton Rouge Sheriff's Department. Anytime there's somebody that, that jumps off of one of the bridges, especially at night, they'll call us. And this doesn't happen that very often. I, I, I don't know, 30 years, probably, I don't know, five or six, okay? They'll call us to go and assist with spotlights to look for, you know, the, the jumper, once they hit the river. And uh, one of the instances that comes to mind, we got the call, it, it was in the afternoon, we went up there to go help them look for the guy who jumped off the bridge. Well, couldn't find him. And we looked, and we looked, and we figured most of the time when, when somebody jumps off a bridge, you don't find them. They usually find them uh, 50 miles down the river. Okay, so this guy jumped off. We went to try to find him, couldn't find him. And fast forward about five months later, coming out of crew change, headed northbound, just cleared the I-10 bridge. I get a phone, a, a radio call. Hey, Port Allen, they got a body going down on Apex Dock. So, you know, anything that happens in the Baton Rouge Harbor, Port Allen is the first boat they call. Been there since forever. So, well, I go over there above Apex, and, and we can see the body floating down, and there's two 
oversized red flag empty barges on the head of apex dock. And I know if that body goes underneath there, there's no way that we're gonna we're gonna find it. So I call my crew, got a two-man crew, and I tell them, look, get spike pole, I'm gonna get alongside of him. And the guy still had his clothes on. I said, don't stick him. I said, take the, 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 the hook and just hook, try to hook his shirt or something. Don't pull him on board, just pull him to the side of the boat. So they do that, right? They they hook his shirt, and they pull him to the side. And this this was the guy that jumped five months before, you know. So he was kind of bloated up. Uh, his head was barely hanging on. It'd been all lacerated. And uh, I called the sheriff's department. They sent out a rescue boat with the coroner on it, and they get the body and they start pulling it on the boat. Right as they're doing that, another boat passed. Okay, throws his wake, hits the 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 body splashes on my deck hands. One guy starts puking right there. <laughs> so, and the other guy is trying to hold on and not puke, you know. But uh, they, they get him on, on board. And the way that they ID'd him, the reason we know it was a guy from five months prior was he had had a, a, a knee replacement. And they took the serial number off the knee replacement. And that's how they knew that it was the guy from five months prior that, that had jumped in the river. So he had got hung up. Uh, who knows, on, on a tree stump or one of the local docks for five months before it came down the river. Then some of the other uh, out-of-the-ordinary stuff, uh, bridge elisions. Uh, you know, there, there's an upper Baton Rouge bridge, and it's in a really bad spot. You, you come around a 90-degree turn, and there's a story that goes with this bridge. So I'm, I'm going to tell you that before I get to the bridge elision. This bridge, I don't know what year it was built in, but it was back before Exxon Dock was there. Uh, can't remember what their name was before it was Exxon, but before that dock was built in Baton Rouge, the refinery was built in Baton Rouge, they wanted to build it further up north, I think somewhere in Arkansas. Huey P. Long, who was the governor at that time, said, no, I want that in Louisiana. And they went back and forth and he intentionally built this bridge where he built it low enough so that a ship could not pass under it. And so Exxon Oil had no other choice but build that refinery right there in Baton Rouge. So it's not in a good place as far as for navigation other than stop ships from going up north. So that's the reason that that bridge, the location of that bridge. But the, the, and that bridge gets hit Oh God, I don't know, 10 times a year, you know, five to 10 times a year. And before the industry started putting assist boats up there to help during during the high water, it used to get hit a lot more. I mean, it, it was during during flood stage, during high water, every two or three days, somebody might hit it. But the last incident that I was involved in, <clears throat> both southbound and he hit the bridge he knocked his two port strings off. And it, this is just amazing the way it, it, it transpired. He hit the bridge and knocked the two port strings off. Now, this is 3.30 in the morning. Well, it's actually about 3.15, because I just gotten on a boat, poured me a good cup of that strong coffee, and didn't even get to take a sip. And I set it down on the console to start going through my stuff. And I get the call. Come in there, pour it out. We need some assistance. We just hit the bridge. So I'm like, all right. So it's right in the middle of crew change. 
waiting for deckhands to show up and said, we get the boats going and I get two boats dispatched going up there to go assist. And, and at this time, we have no idea if you have barges sinking uh, or the barges, you know, floating everywhere. We really don't know. Fortunate enough, he knocked two port strings off. Everything stayed together. No couplings were broke. It was pretty good. Well, our office is, I don't know, four miles from that bridge. And I knew, and, and, and once again, this was before I knew that the, the barges stayed together. I had no idea if the barges were scattered. It was four miles from us. So I called one of my good friends that works for Kirby, which we'll get to a story about him after do this. Anyway, I get to, to give him a call and let him know what's going on. And when a boat hits the bridge or any kind of accident, it, it's not, well, it's a Marquette boat or an, or, or an Ingram boat. It's a fellow mariner. So everybody in the harbor, if you call and you tell them what's going on, they're going to respond. So Donnie, well, the boat that, that the Kirby boat, He's about a mile from it. He, he doesn't ask any questions. I tell him what's going on. He's on the way going there to assist. And uh, so he, he got there, I don't know, probably about 20, maybe 30 minutes before we did. But I got to take my hat off to the line boat that hit that bridge because he came through, knocked those two strings loose, and he was able, to him and his crew, you got to give him a round of applause because he was able to come down in there, catch a wire, on those two strings, and that's all he could get, but he was able to grab that till we could get there to assist him into the bank and, re and rewire all those barges in there. And that, that was one of the fortunate instances where we didn't have anything sinking, uh, nothing broke loose and going down on the dock. But it, it was a really good response by, you know, two different companies going help another boat out. And, uh, but yeah, and, and the guy that, that that was on the Kirby boat. He's a good friend of mine. He had him and I actually used to deck together on the Port Allen. And uh, he's been in the harbor. He's probably the only person in the harbor that's been there longer than me. And uh, so, but it was really good response. And, and like I said, when somebody has an accident, doesn't matter what company, everybody is just a fellow mariner and we're going to assist. Did you have a story about Donnie or was that it? Oh, I got a good one. Okay. <laughs> and he knows about this because we joke about it all the time, okay? One of the things that's changed in this industry is, is the safety. And this was probably, eh, I'm going to say 1980, okay? At that time, the Port Allen, we didn't have any kind of safety uh, railing or safety lines or anything on the bottom deck. We walked out the door, it was flat deck and in the river. Well, street, we're working. The, uh, it's the old Port Allen Marine cleaning plant. And we're on a Port Allen. And uh, it was me. It, well, it was, we had three deckhands. The pilot was, was Mike Canella. Some of the, people, uh, some of the Deloach guys will recognize that name. Mike Canella. Three deckhands. Cliff Carraway, Donnie Canella, and myself. Okay. And the three of us deckhands, we grew up together. We went to high school together. I mean, you know, we, we literally grew up together. So these are good friends of mine. Anyway, uh, we're working the cleaning plant and we're shoving an oversized load. And it's a loaded box. When a boat is made up to the square end of a, bo of a barge and, and, and they're, they're driving on it, excuse me, behind that barge, there's all kind of turbulence in the water. It looks like it's boiling. So 
So anyway, so we're shoving this, this loaded barge and it comes time to tie it off. Donnie goes out to the galley first and I'm following behind him. And I, I don't know what I did or what, but I turned to say something to Cliff and either I tripped, stepped on some grease or what, but I went straight over the side. So I have no idea how, but I wound up hanging on the face wire. I'm literally hanging on the face wire. This water's boiling up all over. The boat's hooked up, you know, and you would think the guys that you grew up with, they're your friends, they're your lifelong buddies. You would think they would jump to pull you out of that water, right? No. Donnie Canella is leaning on the side of the barge laughing so hard, okay? He's laughing at me. I'm hanging in the water on the face wire. Cliff's just sitting inside the galley. The cleaning plant had to call Mike Canella on the radio and say, hey, Cap, you might want to pull him back. You got a deckhand hanging on a face wire. You know, so he pulls him back. They get me out the water. And this is the middle of wintertime. So I'm sitting on the bank. And it was, it was below freezing. I'm sitting on, 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 the, on the deck of that boat. I'm soaking wet. And I look at Donnie. I said, Donnie, I'm going down in that engine room and warm up. When I get back up, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> But him and I still joke about that. And this, that's been, you know, God, man, 40 years. And, uh, but uh, he, he's a, you know, he's a good pilot and uh, he's a good friend. Just can't expect him to save you. Apparently not. But for, for the sake of my friends down under again, uh, tell me what a face wire is. Okay, face wire, when you're moving barges, you have to connect the boat to the barge. And so we have it's a one-inch cable with, a, with an eye spliced in one end of it. That you put that on the bits on the corner of the barges, and you have these hydraulic winches that tighten it up, and, and that's what rigidly connects you to that barge and enables you to maneuver it like you need to to uh, take it wherever. And if your winch is busted, what does it take to fasten that barge to the boat? Well, you can get a set of rigging uh, and and... And that's happened, you know, like anything mechanical, it'll break. And there's there's times when, and you, there's no way of telling when it's going to happen. There's times when you'll give a boat a little rudder and that face wire will break. And you have to have a good deck crew that can come back and you can get a set of rigging, throw it out there, or right on the front of the boat, you have an H-bit. And hopefully you have a good line there and you get a, you know, it's a two-inch dock line you could tie, uh, get a four part and just tie it as tight as you can. You won't have the best steerage, but you'll be able to steer the barge enough to keep it out of, out of, out of harm. And while you set up a set of rigging, which is another one inch cable, seven eighths inch cable with a ratchet and a strap and, and tighten it up to the barge. Well, you mentioned one time going swimming by mistake. There was another story you told me some time ago. You want to share that one? Uh, you talking about the one Jerry deal? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. This is another instance where uh, it should have never happened. Okay. I, I take the responsibility for this. One of the, one of the, there was a boat that had ran aground. It uh, sliced, uh, it opened up the hole and it started taking the water. They were sitting on bottom. They knew it was going to sink. And at that time, I was working for Custom Fuel. They wanted us to go over there and pump the fuel off of the boat before they tried to raise it in case 
something went wrong and that way they wouldn't have, you know, all these thousands of gallons of diesel spilled everywhere. Well, boat was, you know, I mean, it was on bottom, you know, but the deck was above. So we tied the fuel flat off alongside of it. At that time I was running the Jerry deal and broke the boat out. And we actually had that boat tied off alongside the fuel flat. And I was out helping the tankerman run hoses and everything so we could pump the fuel off the boat. Well, got grime and grunge on my hands and decided I want to wash that off. Instead of going into galley, I decided, well, I'm going to just wash my hands right here in the river. Now, the Jerry deal and the fuel flat, they both have tires on the side, cushion when you land on things. And where I leaned over between the boat and the barge, had my life jacket on, and I guess I just leaned over too far. I went head first, straight down between the barge and, and, the, and the Jerry Deal, the boat. Head first between the tires, and I have no idea how I did this, but somehow I was able to fold in half and pop right up back in that same hole where I, where I went into the river. Pulled myself up. And at that time, we didn't have a deck hand. The tanker was out there. There's nobody around. You know, it's a miracle I'm alive. Okay? I really should be dead from stupidity. But pulled myself up, got on the deck, and, and I was like, that was stupid. You know, so, but dried off and just went about our business. But uh, that, that, was, that was, you know, when, when, you, when you step back and you think about it, you realize how close to death I was. You know, I mean, it, it just, to be able to go head first between the boat boy and not get stuck under the barge or not get stuck under the boat and then to pop up in that same spot. That that's uh, divine intervention. I said that that's two instances where, you know, uh, you know really could have been a, a bad outcome. Uh, so I'm, I'm really thankful. So once again, divine intervention. Well, speaking of, and uh, since we're talking about being in the water, there's a story you shared a while back from your Coast Guard days that we forgot to cover last uh, in our last meeting. Oh, oh man, that was so many of them. Uh, well, something about, about a something about a big old eyeball staring at you. Right, right. I got that. Okay. All right. We were this back when I was in the Coast Guard. And I was uh, Coast Guard doctor, and a lot of times I was actually on a seagoing buoy tender. And a lot of times we would set buoys in positions where the ship couldn't, couldn't get close enough to, because of reef. So the dive team would go set it. So eh, I think we were probably, I don't know, 40 feet down. And uh, we were just off the, the, the coast of Kauai. And 40 feet down, I'm down there hooking this shackle up. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty substantial shackle and screw pin shackle shackling the, the, the buoy chain to the, to the dead man. That's what we call the sinker. And uh, which is sinker that, that holds a buoy in position. It's a giant concrete block that weighs literally about 12,000 pounds. So anyway, I'm, I'm hooking this up. And you know, I hear people say, man, it felt like something was looking at me. Hooking this up and I got that feeling. And I lift up and you, gotta, you know, this, you got dive gear on. And, and you have no peripheral vision. You got dive mask on, so you can only see what's in front of you. And pick my head up and I turn like this and literally 
four feet away from me, there's a 60-foot whale, eyeball the size of a basketball looking at me. And my heart stopped, my blood froze, I forgot how to breathe, and I'm just sitting there. And then with just a little slight swish of his tail, this humongous whale just goes off. You know, and at that time, what's going through my mind is I'm not even an hors d'oeuvre for this thing. You know, it, it's huge. You, you can't imagine how massive a whale is four feet away. And uh, it, 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 so he's sitting there looking at me like, you know, what is this human doing? And he just went on about his business. And, and after that happened for a moment, I just sat there and I was like, wow, that was awesome. One thing I wish I would have done was reached out and touched him, you know? And, uh, but, but, you know, I, I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau. That, that was like one of my childhood idols. And here I am, four foot away from this humongous whale. It, it, it was just amazing. Man. That's one of those moments you never forget. Any more dive stories that uh, you may have not shared last time? I know you, you, you told me about the sharks and bailing yeah. out. Uh, yeah, I got another near-death experience. Uh, once again, we were diving, and I'm one of these people who's naturally buoyant. And it takes I, – I can go through a bottle of an air real quick. We were down there working, and uh, all of a sudden, when I'm, I'm probably – not getting any air. I look down at my dive gauge and it's showing, you know, hardly anything in the, in the tank. So, and I don't know how deep we are, 30 feet, something like that. So I start going to the surface. And when, when, when you're running out of air, you start seeing these little white spots. That means you're getting close to passing out. I was real close to that point. As I'm going up, the chain that, that's connected to this buoy it, it's tied off in big loops and it goes right between the back of my head and, and the top of my tanks. So I'm wedged on this chain. And I, I know, you know, I, I, I never freaked out at any instance where I've been in trouble in the water. I never freaked out. And I don't know, something just told me to reach up and push down. And when I did that, freed myself out of the chain. And when I hit the surface, I was as close to blacking out as you could, you know, and that's just another instance where, uh, you know, divine intervention that, that I didn't die. You know, so now uh, I guess just the water's where I'm supposed to be. All right. Well, that's about it, Tim. I appreciate it, Cohen. Well, you know, there is one other thing. Today's episode brought to you in part by Bush's Custom Woodworking. No home is complete without a Bush original made from beautiful Louisiana Sinker Cypress, the most beautiful wood God ever made. How, how's that for a shameless plug? I'll take it. <laughs> All right. You got anything else for me, man? I don't think so. We'll All talk right. to you soon, Cap. Thank you very much. Talk to you later. This has been a production of Where at Studios, LLC. Please check out the bonus video footage of Cohen's shop on YouTube and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching.